I want to start off our time this morning with a question. And it's the title of the message this morning. And here's the question. Are you healthy? Are you healthy? Now, we are in the second week of January. And so maybe some of you had a New Year's resolution that you wanted to get healthier, you wanted to get stronger, you wanted to exercise more, you wanted to lose weight, whatever it was. Like, I'm sure with, with that New Year's resolutions, that probably is about 85% of us and the other 15% needed to make it, right? Uh, so, so that's probably a question that is on your mind right now and you're like, thank you for reminding me. I already messed up this past week and so my motto is, we start on Monday, <laughs> right? Um, so... I just want you to think about that question. And as you're thinking about that question, if you're new with us, let me let you know that we are in this series, second week of this series, entitled Satisfied. And what we mean by that is, what does it look like to live in the fullness of Jesus Christ? What does it look like for you to live a life and for me to live a life that finds its satisfaction in Jesus Christ? Not Jesus Christ plus something, whatever that something is, but no, I understand that my satisfaction, my contentment, me living a life that is satisfied is found in Jesus Christ. Because Colossians, more than any other book, emphasizes the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. If you weren't here last week, let me encourage you, this isn't a plug for our website, but I do think it's important that that you go to our website, you watch it on your tablet, you can listen to it, you can watch it, whatever you choose, because we gave so much background of the book of Colossians last week that is fundamental in us understanding this book as we walk verse by verse in it. And so I want to encourage you with that. But back to our question, are you healthy? You know, growing up, a lot of pastors used to joke around and say that their life verse was 1 Timothy 4, 8. So you're like, well, what is that verse? Some of you might be super sharp and be like, I know where he's going with this. 1 Timothy 4, 8. Used to be, I was always a big joke. I remember sitting in the seats like you, watching somebody else teach as I was a kid and teenager, and oftentimes pastors would joke about this verse. You want to know what 1 Timothy 4, 8 is? Here's, here's the verse. While bodily training is of some value... Godliness is a value in every way. Now, if you're like me, most of the verses that I memorized as a kid were in the King James Version, because that's, man, I was old school, man. That's how I grew up. And so the pastors really love the King James translation. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, that's my life verse, but it's in the King James where it says, bodily exercise profiteth little. Right? So now you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that verse. And so what we're talking about this morning, and the reason why I asked that question, are you healthy, and all joking aside, we're not talking necessarily about your physical health, though obviously that's important. You need to take care of your physical body. We are talking this morning about our spiritual health. How healthy are you spiritually? I want you to think about that. I want you to to ask yourself that. How healthy am I spiritually? And the reason why I ask that question is based on what we're going to find in verse 10 of chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1. This morning, we're going to look at verses 9 all the way through verse 14. But I want to highlight before we read this entire passage of Scripture, verse 10. Because it's really going to define the direction that we go this morning. And really, verses 9 through 14 are all built around this phrase 
in verse 10, if you were to look at it in the original language, which is the Greek. And here's the phrase in verse 10. Paul says this to the church at Colossae. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now what does walk mean? Well, literally that, that word in the Greek literally means with how you live your life. That's what it means. How you live your life. That's your walk. That's what the word means. But then it says, in a manner worthy of the Lord. So there's great significance in that word worthy. See, it was actually used in the time that Paul is writing as a measurement term. So what would happen in the marketplace is that they would, they would have a standard, some type of weight that would equate to whatever money you were exchanging or whatever goods you were buying, that this weight was, was the standard showing that whatever you were buying was of value to what the standard was. And so what they would do is they would have these scales and they would lay that weight, that standard on the scale, and they would lay whatever money or whatever goods you were buying, and if the scales equaled out, then you would know that the things that you are buying are truly worth what they're supposed to be worth. That was the word that was used, the word that Paul uses of worthy, that's how that word was used in the time that Paul writes this letter to the church of Colossae. So here's the significance of that. So if that's what the word means, worthy, walk means how I live my life, then literally what Paul is saying is, is that if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his perfect life for you in place of your sinful life, his perfect death for you, what your sin and my sin deserves, and you believe that he rose again three days later, if you place your trust in that, not in the good that you've accomplished, but in the perfection that Christ accomplished for you, then you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what is the expectation for you and me as someone who has received that gift of salvation from God through Jesus Christ? That we are to live our life in a manner worthy of what God has done for us. So in other words, the way that I live my life, the way that you live your life, ought to give weight and worth to who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for you. That's the idea. So when we ask the question, am I spiritually healthy, the question literally that we're asking is, am I living my life and are you living your life as a follower of Jesus Christ in a way that would give worth and weight to what Jesus has accomplished for you? I didn't say perfect, but are you living your life in such a way that someone would say, man, the way that they're living their life shows how serious they are about Jesus. Now here's the idea that I want you to get from this passage of scripture today in application to what we're gonna read in Colossians 1, 9 through 14, it's this. That a healthy Christian life is not meant to be an exceptional but normative way of living. See, oftentimes we think to ourselves that if someone is living their Christian life in such a way that you're like, man, there's a seriousness to the way that they're living their life. Not that they're somber and they never smile or they're never happy, but there's a seriousness. Like I can see that they take their Christian life seriously. There's, they're, they're living their life in such a way that, man, Jesus is making a difference in their life. That oftentimes what we think is we're like, man, that person is like some superhuman Christian. Like I could never be that. That person is batting a thousand, so to speak. 
But what we need to understand this morning is when Paul encourages and says, church at Colossae, I'm praying that you walk in a manner worthy of your calling, that he's not saying that to a few. What he's saying is, is that ought to be a normal, normative way that Christians live their life because they understand the worth of what Jesus Christ gave for you, what Jesus Christ gave for me. Paul uses this phrase, walk in a manner worthy, a few different instances, and I think it shows the significance of this phrase. He says it in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 to the church at Thessalonica, and who he writes to, he says, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. He says it to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says it to the church at Philippi, in whom he writes to in Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of those phrases where worthy is mentioned has the same definition. You know what that tells me? If Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who gave Paul these words in his own writing style, if the Holy Spirit felt it important to repeat himself four times to four different churches, then what we also need to say in application is what the Lord wants to say to Salem Chapel this morning, which is you and me, is that we want ought to walk in a way that gives weight, that gives worth that shows others how much we value who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. And that's not an exceptional way of living. That ought to be a normative way of living. It's what God wants for every one of his people who put their faith and trust in him. See, your spiritual health and my spiritual health will affect whether or not I'm satisfied in Jesus Christ. So if you're not experiencing satisfaction in Jesus Christ, you're like, yeah, man, I'm looking to everything else because I'm not experiencing that. You know when then that's an indicator of? You're not spiritually healthy. So I remember when I um, had to go to the eye doctor because I didn't always used to wear these. Like like I tried last week, you know, some of you noticed I didn't have glasses on. I was like, I'm just going to try to preach without glasses. Yeah, um, Praise God for the strength of the Holy Spirit, because I could hardly read my notes. So I have them on this morning. But when I went to the eye doctor, all of a sudden overnight, like I was doing, I was doing this number, right? Some of you are doing that because you can't admit that you need it. But you know what was interesting? When I went to the eye doctor, I sat in that chair, and they put those things on, you know, the, and, and to try to get my, my vision. And you know what they used to determine that I needed glasses? There was a standard. The standard is 2020, right? There was a standard that indicated whether my eyes needed help or didn't need help, whether they were healthy, quote unquote, or not healthy. And so if I would have walked in there and, and sat in that seat and had them do all the things that they did to my eyes and walked out of there with a prescription and said, hey, awesome, hey, Lori, guess what? No longer do I have to read my Bible the way that I've been reading it, and you've noticed this for a long time. So now I have a prescription. All is awesome, and I get up the next week to preach and read my notes, and obviously she's like, dude, you're saying the same thing you've done before, and I'm like, yeah, but I have a prescription now. Why isn't this working Well, the prescription only identifies the problem. And so what we need to do this morning is not only ask ourselves, are we spiritually healthy according to this passage that we're going to read, 
but also look at it with intentionality and say, Lord, where in my life am I not living the way that you designed me to live so that I can experience the satisfaction that is truly found in Jesus Christ? I just want us to stop for a moment. I want us to pray, and I just simply want to pray this. Lord, would you show me where my spiritual health needs to improve? That one prayer. Because we know when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. He's going to speak. But Lord, would you help me to see what you want me to see? God, we're here today. Your word is opened. God, may our lives be open to what you want to show us today. Knowing that a spiritual healthy, spiritually healthy life is not meant to be exceptional. God, it's what you want every one of your children to experience. A nor- this ought to be a normative way of living. God, would you help us to see what you want us to see today? In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Let's get into this text. Look at what Paul says. He says, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as, here's the phrase, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now let me just tell you from the get-go, this alone could be a whole series. These verses. There's so much in these verses, verses 9 through 14, that show us what it looks like for us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What it looks like, to use our term today, what it looks like to live a spiritually healthy life. And what I want to do this morning is do our best, though we're not going to be able to expound it the way that we want, but to be true to the text and look at three characteristics that the Holy Spirit gives us through what we have in Colossians, three characteristics of a healthy Christian life. So I asked you to ask yourself, are you spiritually healthy? How's your Christian life? There's various answers, really only two answers we have in here. It's going well by the grace of God or you're really struggling. And so let's look at what God's word gives as the standard of what health looks like so that we can walk out of these doors not just with a prescription, but ready to apply it to our life. So in, here's the first characteristic, and it's found in verses 9 and 10. I won't read it all again, but here's the first characteristic of a healthy Christian life. Number one, you are growing in your understanding and application of God's word. Here's what you're going to find today if you've been coming to this church at all for any length of time or you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time. Anything that we are going to give you from God's word this morning is probably not going to be new to you. So the question is not, is it new to you? The question is, how are you applying it to your life? And in verses 9 and 10, the emphasis here is that someone who is spiritually healthy, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, is growing in their knowledge, understanding, and application of God's word to their life. Why do I say that? Because of that word knowledge. I remember we gave a lot of background last week to this book. 
But knowledge was a favorite word of the Gnostic philosophers of the time. See, Gnosticism was huge during this time of the church. And what Gnosticism basically teaches is knowledge is the way of light, enlightenment and ultimate salvation. Like, like the more we can know, the more that we will be enlightened, the more that we will experience ultimate salvation. So it's all about what you know. Here's something else the Gnostics taught. You didn't even need to apply what you knew. Just by knowing, you all of a sudden gained this enlightenment, whatever that looked like. And it was knowledge that you could always gain more knowledge. And so whatever knowledge I had, well, that wasn't all the knowledge that there was. That wasn't all that the truth that there was. There was, there was also, I, needed, I need to have, so, so your truth, yeah, I want to know that. But I also want to know your truth, and I want to know your truth. And, and, and let's all say that we believe in truth, and your truth can be different than my truth. But nevertheless, I'm gaining more knowledge to reach some sense of spiritual enlightenment. That's what the Gnostics thought, which is so awesome that Paul uses the word knowledge. So Paul basically says, I'm going to use a word that's been hijacked and define it in the way that it's meant to be defined. And so when Paul uses the word knowledge, he adds something to the word that the Gnostics would use. See, the Gnostics word for knowledge, the Greek word was gnosis. But if you looked at the original language, Paul actually adds three words in front of gnosis. It's the three words that make up the word epi. And the significance of that and Paul adding that to what the Gnostics would use as knowledge is because when Paul says in this text that his prayer for them is that they would be filled, which by the way means to be completely filled, not halfway. Perfect illustration for that is how many of you when you go through a drive-thru, we're talking about being healthy, right? So when you're going through a drive-thru of a healthy place (laughs) and you're ordering water, what do you, what do you hate? Because I know I hate it. I hate it when they load the cup with ice. Right? I hate it. I hate to get ripped off. So if you're like me, whatever healthy beverage that you're ordering, you say, at least I do, I was like, no ice, please, because it's coming out of the machine cold. Like, like, that was just free for you if you never realized that or not. Why? Because I want my cup when I get it, not to be half full. I want it to be completely fulled to the brim. I want my money's worth. And what I love is Paul uses this word that you may be filled, and the idea is not half full, not three quarters filled, filled to the brim. So you can never say for God that God shortchanged you, that you would be filled, but filled with what? Filled with the knowledge, but Paul uses those words, as I said, epi, those three letters, because when he uses the word knowledge, he doesn't mean that you gotta search for it here and you gotta search for it there and this can't be all that there is. I gotta look for more truth. No, no, no. What he says is, listen, my prayer for you is that you are filled, completely full with the knowledge of his will, full knowledge. When he adds adds, adds epi to that, that's the idea, full knowledge, that God is not gonna shortchange you with something and say, man, God kept that from me and he knew that I was gonna need it in order to accomplish what he wanted me to accomplish. No, 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 God has given you access to the full knowledge of his will. Talk more about that in a second, but 
Last week I had some people come up to me and they were sharing me just different, different things about the culture that we live in today and how similar it is to the culture that church at Colossae was dealing with. And they said, uh, hey, have you heard of this term post-truth? And I was like, no, that's a weird word. And they were like, well, actually in 2016, it was Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. So obviously a hyphenated word. And so I like looked it up and Here's the definition for post-truth. When I read this definition, I was like, oh, of course I know that. I've just never heard of the term before. But post-truth means this, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So here's what that means. Facts, no longer important. Emotions and what you believe, now that's the standard. Post-truth. Now here's what I've found. Terms change, definitions don't, right? That's exactly what Paul is dealing with here in the part of the heresy that is threatening the church at Colossae. Well, you ever Google something, right? You ever Google something or, and it all of a sudden takes you into a vortex of information? Like it just like pulls you in? Well, that happened to me. So I came across this term. So there's post-truth, right? 2016, man. So I've been behind the times. I wasn't even aware of that phrase. That's been around for four years now. Well, now if you have post-truth, and that's a term thrown around, then you have post-truth. Guess what I found out? Post-truth politics. Not that we're going to talk about politics today, but post-truth politics. This is what I thought thought was interesting. That's a hard word. Post-truth politics is a political culture in which debate is framed largely by appeals to emotion disconnected from the details of policy and by the repeated assertion of talking points to which factual rebuttals are ignored. So let me put it in simple terms. If I I sat with you and you're like, we're both looking at the same sky and you're like, the sky is blue. And I'm like, no, it's not, it's red. No, 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 Johnny, the, cl- the sky is clearly blue. No, it's red. It makes me feel good that it's red. It gives me warm, fuzzy feelings that it's red. Like I'm able to sleep at night because it's red. So therefore, it's red. And then the person that was arguing with me is like, I guess you're right. Is that not our society today? That's our society today. That there's no absolutes anymore. There's no truth anymore. It's, it's literally what you believe is good, what I believe is good, and, and as long as we can all get along, then everything's good. Let's just look for some more knowledge. Oh, I've never heard that before. Let me adopt that as well. That's the society that we live in, but it's no different than what Paul's living in. Here's why I say that. Because when Paul says, here's my prayer for you, church, that you would be filled completely full with the knowledge of his will, full knowledge. What Paul is saying, listen, society is saying that what you believe and what I believe and and it's just more knowledge to attain and we can just know more and, and we can gain some sense of enlightenment. No, 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 no. Here's what God's design for you is and desire for you in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
is that you would see that God hasn't shortchanged you, that he didn't save you through Jesus Christ to, live you, to leave, leave you wandering and saying, man, what in the world? What does God want me to do today? How in the world am I gonna live my Christian life today? How in the world am I gonna know how to interact with the people that I come in contact with today? How in the world am I gonna know how to have a marriage that honors God? How in the world am I gonna know how to raise my kids? How in the world am I gonna know what to say no to and yes to in my personal life? That God hasn't left us wandering or wondering. He's given us a standard. And his standard is the word of God. Because get this, for the Christian, key, word, key phrase, for the Christian, the word of God is to be your absolute truth. Now I say for the Christian for a reason. It doesn't mean that for the person who's not yet put their faith and trust in Christ that God's word's not truth to them, but here's the idea. I don't expect them to see God's word as truth. They don't yet put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which is just another side note. I love how Paul starts off this book because he doesn't start attacking the false teaching right out of the gate of what's going on at Colossians. You know what he does? We're just gonna lift up Jesus. We're gonna lift up Jesus first. And you know, when you're interacting with people in the workplace and they don't believe that God's word is truth, you ought not be surprised that they believe differently than you. I ought not to shock you. You ought not, you ought not to be offended by that. Why? Because they have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I've never found someone who's going to be swayed by me arguing the application of God's truth to their life without them first making the decision to realize that Jesus is their Savior. It starts with who Jesus is. That's always where you start. That's where Paul starts. I mean, lift up Jesus. And once we have Jesus lifted up and we're seeing Jesus as who he rightly is, then we can talk about the other factors that affect your personal life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is the passage of scripture that reminds us of the authority and sufficiency of God's word in our life, that it is absolute. I even, to be transparent with you, I even wonder, I was like, do I even need to mention this verse? I feel like I repeat it all the time, but then I was like, no, 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 no. Repetition is the key to learning. If you're to have a passage of scripture at your hip when you wanna argue, man, do I really need to live according to what God's word says here? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. What does it say? All scripture. Say that first word with me. All. Say it again. All. Say it again. All. One more time. All. Man, there's times in my life I would love it to say some. I really would. I would love it to say, I love someone to say, well, in the Greek, it just means the stuff you like. But it says all scripture is breathed out by God. That's the reason why we open up God's word every day. That's the reason why I don't stand up and I'm like, you know what, I wrote a letter to you this week. Let's open up that letter. Y'all got it in your email. Let's all open it up and let's walk through the letter that I wrote to you. You know why? Because my words are not God's words. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is the passage of scripture that reminds us that the book that we ought to open up on a consistent and daily basis in our life, the reason why I do it is because these are God's, word to, God's words to me. When, he, when Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will, what you need to understand is this is a reference to God's word because God's will is God's word. 
It's not this nebulous target out there that I hope I can hit it and and hopefully my aim is right, my spiritual aim is right. No, no, no. If I am obeying God's word, then I'm in God's will. Plain and simple. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. But how do I do that? Because knowledge isn't enough, right? What What I wanna caution us with this morning is sometimes we can live our lives practicing Christian Gnosticism. Well, I just need to know more. I need to go to another Bible study. Man, I'm already a part of four. Man, surely five will help me. Five Bible studies, six Bible studies. Let me know, let me take Greek, let me take Hebrew, all this. I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong, but, but, but I, I wanna caution us because I think sometimes we think if we can just cram more knowledge in our head that it will automatically result in making a difference in my life. Knowledge is important. God's word gives us the full knowledge of how to live a life. 2 Timothy 3.16, how I can be equipped for every good work. But it's important that I am filled with the knowledge of his will, as Paul says, and he doesn't leave this out, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Doesn't stop with knowledge. Like I said, man, I can have a prescription on what's gonna make my, me be able to see better, but until I take that prescription and actually fill it and actually buy the glasses and put them on my head and wear them, that's when it's actually going to make a difference in my life. And I love that God's word doesn't shortchange us. He says, grow, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which means taking the knowledge that I have been given that I am learning, that I am growing in, but also applying it to my life. That's the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing something, but knowing how it fits into your life. Understanding is saying, okay, that's what it says, and I understand how I need to apply it to my life. But but what I think is significant is Paul reminds us that it's spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's why we read every week Jude 24 and 25 to remind ourselves that we cannot apply God's word to our life in our own strength. Paul says, man, God has not shortchanged you. He's given you full knowledge. It's found in his word. You don't need to be wandering or wondering. But it's so that you can grow in your spiritual wisdom. It's a product of you relying on the Holy Spirit, you submitting to the Holy Spirit and saying, Lord, would you help me apply this to my life? John 14, John 16 speaks of the Holy Spirit as a helper. But what's the result when we grow in our understanding and application of God's word to our life? Look at what it says. It says there at the end of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I see fruit in my life. I see it making a difference. I'm seeing that I'm thinking differently than I used to think months ago or a year ago. I'm seeing my marriage in a better place than it was six months ago. I'm I'm seeing my relationship with my family in a different and a healthier way because because I'm taking God's word and I'm putting it into practice. I'm relying on the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm seeing a difference in my personal life, how I even see life. That's fruit. And as I'm growing and I'm seeing fruit, then I'm also growing in my knowledge of God more. I'm seeing more about who God is becoming more real to me as I see God's word come to life in my life. 
What does that practically look like? Because here's what I do. I, we, could, we can move right on to verse 11, and you could be sitting here, and you'd be like, yes, I know I need to do that. Like over and over again, every week, I'm like, I need to get in God's word, but I didn't do it. And I think if we moved on to verse 11 and didn't just practically give some suggestions about how you could really work at this, I feel like we would shortchange ourselves. So let me just give you some practical things. None of this is found in the text. These are practical applications of the text. Here's the first thing that I would encourage you with. Get into God's word. If you haven't already developed a reading plan, here's a website. It's gonna be super easy to remember, bible.com. I have no idea what they pay for that domain name, but the best domain name if you're a, a website for reading plans. Bible.com, it's got reading plans on topics that you may be struggling with. A certain situation, depression, anxiety, fear, I don't know. They have Bible reading plans for that, passages of scriptures that deal with that. They have, they have Bible reading plans that'll take you through the Bible in a year, whatever it is. But listen to me, so many of us, man, we wanna improve our golf game? Man, we'll, we'll subscribe to Golf Magazine, we'll watch videos, we'll buy six different tools that are supposed to help our backswing. I mean, we'll spend gobs of money and gobs of time to increase our backswing. Wait a minute, how spiritually healthy are we? Bible.com. Here's another thing, buy a journal. Buy a journal. I've said this about myself, I don't like to write long emails. I don't write, like to write long notes. My texts are short, my emails are short, my little love notes to Lori are short. Like, that's who I am. But, you know, I felt like the Lord was impressing upon my heart a couple years ago. I needed to write some things down. So I bought a journal. So here's what my quiet time looks like. And I'm not saying this to make much of me. I'm just trying to give you to walk out of here with like, okay, let me, let, let me try that. Here's what I do. Before I ever open up God's word, here's what I do. I pray. And it's just a simple prayer like this. God, would you show me in your word today what I need? And then I get into God's word and I have my journal right there. And here's what I do with that journal. I, 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 I write three symbols. Exclamation point, question mark, hashtag. Now here's what's awesome. If you've been a part of this church at all, this is not familiar with you. Here's what's also cool. We do this with our kids in Salem Kids. We do this with Thrive, our youth ministry. We do this with our college students. We do this with the men. We've introduced this with the women. This applies regardless of how old you are. The Pereira family has done this in family worship with our kids because our kids are a little bit older. And it's simply going through God's word and whatever you're reading that day, asking yourself these three questions. The exclamation point, literally you're asking this. What has impacted me from today's reading? What stood out to me? Write it down. You don't have to write a book. Write it down. Here's, here's the question mark piece. What questions do I have about what I read? Those are important things. What do I not understand? What's, what's not familiar with me? Absolutely, I saw someone pull out their phone. I'm glad you pulled out your phone. This is not a rebuke. If you wanna pull out your phone and take a picture of that, I would love for you to do that. Question mark. What things stood out to me? Guess what? Some of you are on a year-long reading plan. You're like, man, I don't really have any questions that much. I'm really breezing by that. Wait till you get to Leviticus. <laughs> Let me just say this as a side note. Do you know what meeting I would love more than any other? For you to say, shoot me an email or Aaron an email or Mark an email and say, hey, I have some questions about what I was reading in my time alone with the Lord and I'd love to sit down with you and ask you questions. I would love those types of meetings. 
Love them. Or your life group leader, whoever it is. Those are good things. And here's the hashtag. Here's what I've learned. Here's why Mark came up with these three things for his youth. He showed it to me, and I was like, dude, we need to do this everywhere. I've grown in my understanding of hashtags, right? Because my kids who are teenagers have helped me not be totally square in realms of technology. What are hashtags for those of you who don't know? It literally is like a tag that, that summarizes or connects whatever idea you have. So if you see that on social media, that's the reason why they do it. Here's the importance of why we put hashtags. It simply means this. What do you believe the Lord wants you to do with that in your life? What's the takeaway? I read this. This is what stood out to me. How do I apply that in my life in this situation that I'm walking through? And then you know what you do? You close in prayer. You ask the Lord to give you the spiritual wisdom and understanding to take the knowledge that you've gained and apply it to your life. If you don't already have a routine, a regimen, then I encourage you to take that. Because you cannot be spiritually healthy apart from knowing and understanding and applying God's word to your life. Here's the second thing, second characteristic of a healthy Christian life. It's found in verse 11. Let me read verse 11 again. Paul continues. This is his prayer to the church at Colossae. He says that you would be strengthened. That literally means strength in action. Like it has the idea of action, that you're actually doing something with all power. Whose power? Paul answers it, according to his glorious might. I love that word might, because it literally means this, power that overcomes obstacles. So in other words, Paul prayers that you would experience his strength, which by the way, just to let you know, the, the idea of bearing fruit in every good work has the idea that you're, you're continually doing so. Now granted, some, some months, some years, you may have more fruit than others, but a healthy Christian life is bearing fruit fruit. Not, I did that five years ago and nothing's happened since. No, no, no. You're bearing fruit. You're being strengthened. You're continually experiencing his strength. And how? You are seeing yourself overcome obstacles because of the Lord's strength in you. And then he says, according to his glorious might, for what? For all endurance and patience with joy. See, verse 11 flows from what we saw in verses 9 and 10. That as I'm growing in my knowledge, as I'm growing in my understanding, as I'm applying it to my life, the result is, is that I am experiencing God's strength. See, the second characteristic is you're experiencing God's strength regardless of the adversity. That's the second characteristic of spiritual health according to this passage of Scripture. Let me remind us, this isn't meant to be an exceptional way of living, but a normative way of living in your life. You're experiencing God's strength regardless of the adversity experiencing it. Now, Paul uses two words that I think are so interesting. You see him there at the end of verse 11, he says, for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, when I read these two definitions, I was like, two words and the the meanings of them, I was like, wow, that is significant. Because endurance has the idea of not being defeated under suffering circumstances, Because adversity can come in two forms, right? One one form can be circumstances, right? The circumstances that happen, like natural disasters. Like, I'm not aware of it. I hope it's not the case. But but in the windstorm last night, like a tree could have fallen on your house, I would characterize that as adversity. 
<laughs> Wouldn't you? So natural disasters can cause adversity. We, we can experience those. Getting diagnosed with a disease can, can be can be adversity and can be circumstantial, right? I mean, we get, we get diagnosed with cancer or some other ailment and that shocks us. That's adversity that's coming to our life. Can happen financially. Maybe you lose your job. You had no control over that. And so you're experiencing a circumstantial aspect of adversity in your life. That's the idea of the word endurance. But then there's that word patience, which patience means this. Self-restraint with people. Can we just pause and let that definition take root? Like, not patience with self-restraint with circumstance. No, self-restraint with people. Which just shows us adversity can come in two forms, right? Circumstantial, we already talked about, but man, can adversity come also through people? We're all sinful people and I can act sinfully to someone else and I can actually bring adversity into your life by my actions. Whether that be in a marriage, whether that be in a, in a friendship, whether that be in a, in a relationship at work, whatever it be. And so we can not only experience circumstantial adversity, we can experience adversity interpersonally. And what Paul says is a healthy Christian, someone who's living in such a way that, that shows spiritual health is experiencing God's strength, not my strength, but God's strength in my life and how to deal with circumstantial adversity and also adversity that comes into my life interpersonally. But notice he says that experiencing God's strength produces endurance and patience, but he uses the phrase with joy. But what's the significance of that? Well, we know the definition of happiness, right? I mean, it's all been said different ways. But happiness has the idea of, man, a feeling based on a positive circumstance. There's nothing wrong with being happy. Sometimes when we give the definition of happiness, it's like, it makes you almost feel like you shouldn't be happy. Like, I'm going to eat after this service? I promise you I'll be happy. There's nothing wrong with happiness. It's just knowing the difference between happiness and joy. And the word that we're supposed to experience God's strength and endurance and patience circumstantially with people, but we're to do it with joy, that idea is, is we do it with joy based out of a knowledge and understanding and application of the sufficiency of what I've been given by God through Jesus Christ. So in other words, the joy that, that I experience in the midst of that, not that I'm happy because I'm in adversity, but the joy that keeps my equilibrium, that helps me to endure, that helps me to experience patience with people when I've been wronged, that patience to be able to forgive is understanding, wait a minute, I know what I believe about Jesus Christ. And I know what God's word says about adversity. That I need to count it all joy. I need to have an understanding, a knowledge that this is coming to my life to produce strength in my life in the midst of adversity. That I'm supposed to exercise patience because how much patience does Jesus exercise with me? That I need to forgive. Why? Because of what God has forgiven me. So the with joy is, is that I live that way. I live experiencing God's strength in the midst of adversity because I understand what God's word says about it and I see how it's impacting my life as I apply it. That's the idea with joy. There's a 
term in the fitness world that's abbreviated with these three initials, T-U-T. Some of you who are in that world would know what that means. It literally means time under tension. So the idea is, have you ever, have you ever been like, man, I need to work out today and I really don't feel like it? For, for I don't know about you, it was me every day. And, and so, you know, you get those weights, and you're like, I gotta go through this, and so you're like, okay, I gotta do these reps, and so you're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, two. just so you can say that you got done with your workout. Well, I don't know about you, but the videos that I watch, I'm reminded, all right, I can't go through this time under, keep saying that, time under tension, why? Because the idea is, is the longer that your muscles are under tension, the more endurance that you gain, the more strength gains that you experience. It's just a human fact of life. I don't grow stronger without pushing up against adversity, whatever it may be, and the same is true of our Christian life. So what's the practical implications of this? What does that practically look like in my life? If that is another characteristic of a healthy Christian life, then you know what that practically looks like for me? It's me understanding, I'm gonna say this again, I sound like a broken record, at least I do in my mind, this idea, celebration is a part of your sanctification. It is. I am not a reflective person. I'm not. I'm always thinking about the next thing down the road. It's part of why I, I often struggle with being satisfied in Jesus because I'm always thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next, instead of stopping and saying, wait a minute, how have I experienced and grown and seeing that I'm strengthened by the power of his might with endurance and patience, with joy? See, celebration is a part of our sanctification. What do I mean by sanctification? Well, you have that theological word justification which speaks of our salvation, declared righteous. Some people said it like this, just as if I have never sinned is how God sees me through Jesus Christ. I'm justified, declared not guilty. Sanctification has the idea of me and my walk with the Lord. The verse 10 that we looked at, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Sanctification is me growing in my relationship with Jesus Christ and becoming more like Jesus, looking less like who I used to look before I came to Jesus and more like Jesus as my life has changed. That's sanctification. And celebration is a part of that. So you know what you ought to do in that journal that I told you you need to get? You need to often write down the ways that you've seen God change you. What monument do you need to write down? God, my goodness, if I didn't, you did this and you did this and you did this and at my workplace and you did this with this job and you provided financially in this way and you grew that, that situation in, in my relationship with my, with my wife in such a way that we were so sideways and our marriage is better now than it was before. You need to write that stuff down. Why? Because that is God's work in you. It's what he's doing so that you see the significance of this birth and you can say, man, I have seen myself being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might with endurance and patience with joy. Here's the last characteristic. It's found in verses 12 through 14. Characteristic of a healthy Christian life. You are giving thanks to God for what you've been given. Once again, that's not a one-time deal. That's a continual thing. I'm continually giving thanks to God for what I've been 
given. Now listen to me. If I'm only giving thanks to God for the things that make me happy, then my thankfulness will be fickle at best. And I love that the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us what our giving of thanks is to be rooted in. He says it right there, doesn't he? He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified. That word qualified means that you've been made worthy by God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You didn't deserve it. God qualified you to be a recipient of his salvation through Jesus Christ. And then he says, he's qualified you to share. What does share mean? Share means to share something with someone that they didn't have in the first place. Now, I'm going to share something with you I don't like to share. Perfect example of that. So when Lori and I are going out for dinner, and she's like, hey, how about you get this, and I get this, and we share it. I don't like that. Because <laughs> I know what I want, and I want it all. But I was actually proud of myself. We went out to dinner last week, and we did that. And so I shared half of what I got and what she got. But God doesn't mix words here. He says we need to give thanks because God has qualified you to share something that you didn't have. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. God's sharing it with you. And so what does our giving of thanks need to be rooted in? Well, look at verse 12. First of all, he says, you have an inheritance of the saints that's in light. In other words, the reason why I can give thanks, and not just one time, but continually, the reason why it can be my attitude is the idea, is because I've been given an inheritance by God that can't be taken away. Verse five says, it's a hope that's stored in heaven. It can't be lost in the stock market. It can't be lost because of my, my negligence. It can't be lost because of my stupidity. It is rooted in who God is and in Jesus Christ. It is an inheritance kept for me. It is in light. It is in heaven. It can't be erased is the idea. And it's an inheritance that Yes, I know when I pass from this life to the next that I will be with, be with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. But, it's, but Paul's not just speaking about the future. He's also speaking about the present. That my future inheritance gives perspective to how I live my present life. I've been given something that I don't deserve. It's been shared with me. I've been qualified to receive it. It's an inheritance in the light. It can't be lost. First Peter 2.9 says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gives us another reason to give thanks in verse 13 when he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Listen, the idea is, is we've been rescued. It's the idea of transferred. We've been rescued from the spiritual forces of Satan. Remember what I said last week about the gospel? The gospel saves us from our sin. It saves us from Satan. It saves us from spiritual death. I'm no longer bound 
by the spiritual forces that are at work in this world according to Ephesians 6. No, no, no. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world was what 1 John says. And so when he says he's transferred you, you're no longer bound to the power of the enemy over your life. No, no, no. You now have been transferred to a kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, it's not just speaking about one day I'll rule and reign with the Lord for all of eternity, though that's part of it. It's understanding, man, I've been brought into relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's a loving king and he's a good king. And he's a king who has equipped me with everything that I need to live a life that gives weight and worth to who Jesus Christ is. Then notice what he says. In verse 14, he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption literally means to deliver by payment of ransom. Jesus paid the ransom for my life. He gave his life. He died. He rose again. And we have been set free from our sin, and we have been forgiven. And for some of us, we need to dust off that reality in our life and stop being negative all the time and know where our giving of thanks ought to be rooted in. Not happiness, though praise God for those things, but in the things that will never change for all of eternity. Nobody likes to be around a negative person. And so if you're struggling with that, you know what you need to do? And I'm gonna say this for all of us because I can be negative just as much as you can. Here's a practical way that we ought to say, you know what, I'm gonna develop a new habit in 2020 that every day that I get up, I'm gonna thank the Lord for what I've been given in Jesus Christ. You know what that practically looks like? We ought to memorize verses 12 through 14 of Colossians 1. That every day that I get up, that I say those verses, say, Lord, I want to thank you. Because you know what that does? That shapes my present reality. Listen to me. As we close this morning, here's what I want you to understand. I have prayed this. I want us to understand this. What I have shared from God's word for you today is not another add-on to your life. Well, Johnny gave, us, gave me one more thing that I got to do. One more thing that I'm reminded that I'm not measuring up. No, 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 listen to me. This is not an add-on. This is literally, Colossians 1, 9 through 14, is the grid by which we live our lives. What do I mean by grid? Because it's gonna help me to say, okay, now all of a sudden I know how this fits in this. Because a healthy Christian life is, is how God wants me to live. It's my normative way of living. So how does my work fit into this? How does my marriage fit into this? How does my relationship with my girlfriend or my boyfriend fit into this? How does my relationship with my fiance fit into this? How does my relationship with that person that is a struggle for me right now, how does that fit into this? How do my goals fit into this? How do my dreams fit into this? How do my finances fit into this? It's a grid. It's not one more thing. It's how we view life. Because the call for all of us is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. Healthy Christian life.